Hi, I'm Jason. I'm John. And I'm Marquis. And this is Just Just Getting Getting By. A free talk forum about the creative process and the wounds that hold us back from achieving our goals. Each week, building a roadmap through dialogue with working and struggling artists about how to better manifest a successful show business career. Hey, it's Jason here. This week's episode features Mariela Mostov, truly one of my best friends spanning nearly my entire adult life. I met Mariela in 2007 when we were both taking a downtown theater course at NYU. She overheard me talking about producing and directing my first independent theater piece and literally jumped at the opportunity to be my stage manager. Anyone who does theater can attest that stage manager is a rigorous and relatively thankless job. I don't use the term loyal very often, but there is no better descriptor for this woman. Despite being the support system for many in her life, her voice has remained loud, clear, and cohesive. I've called Mariella dozens of times over the years seeking education of how to respectfully talk about issues of gender and trans identity. She is a powerhouse of knowledge. After we recorded this episode, we sat on a sunny balcony in Staten Island, sipping tea and discussing the realistic possibility of her one day being an egg donor and surrogate when I decide it's time to have a baby, which, let me tell you, brought me more joy and hope than I can express. I share that personal information here as a testament to the depths of our friendship. Don't get me wrong, though. She's also dying to be pregnant, as you'll see if you follow any of her Instagram stories. We've asked Mariella to sit in as a future guest host for any interviews where John, Marquis, or I won't be available. So, without any further ado, this is our episode with the marvelous Mariella Mostov. I got kind of very spooky, like ancestor ghosty feelings getting oh. getting on the ferry like the little section between like the dock and or the station and like actually getting yeah. on the boat i got like kooky like weird like deja vu ancestor vibes oh like my gosh. yeah ever been did to your ancestors did your yeah. immigrate through ellis island um, or was it like i believe airplane? it was ellis island no i mean it was in the 60s actually i just asked my sister 60s, about this right. recently because um i knew that because my family immigrated in the late 60s and um my sister said something about, you know, them coming over on a boat. And I was like, was it a boat? Like, there were planes in the 60s. <laughs> I was like, was it? And she, was, and she checked with them. But then, like, yeah, it was Ellis Island. Oh, wow. Yeah. When people were still coming through Ellis Island in the 60s? Apparently. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, they came through New York. Right. Well, and that's the other thing. It's just, like, even though there were planes and that was a possibility, the fact of the matter was people didn't have the money. Yeah. Which made sense to me when I thought about it. Yeah. Obviously. So how did your family get to Chicago? Um, I think there were already other family members there. Mm-hmm. So um, they just had like a built-in community there. You mean like how like how did they travel? No, no, no. no. Sure. I meant like what brought them to Chicago. They had family there. There's like a really strong um, Romanian community already there or Serbian community already there. So. What did your family do professionally? What do they do? Um... I mean, they were both, my grandparents were both union people, like, um, my grandma worked in a factory until her factory closed down, and my grandpa was a janitor, and then he got his mechanic license, uh, and then he worked in a body shop until he retired, and my grandparents also own um, two apartment buildings in Chicago, and that's kind of, like, their main continued source of income, Um, so my grandpa is basically, like, the super, the building manager, like the everything of his buildings. He's still like, he still like gut renovates every apartment himself, like between tenants. And he's like approaching 80. I'm like, it's, you need help. <laughs> it's so funny though, how like older men are very headstrong about like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. This is me. He just like can't imagine paying someone doing else. it. Yeah. It's like, this is something I know how to do. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Like he's which, like, why wouldn't I? Which is so interesting. I feel like that's the same thing with my dad or... Even Michael's, Michael's dad, yeah, yeah, Michael's dad will come and like fix whatever is going on in our house. Yeah. <laughs> What's your mom doing? Why did they immigrate? Um, they were refugees, mm-hmm. um, sort of fleeing very tyrannical communism in what was at the time Yugoslavia in the sixties. Um, so they escaped. They got out. Um, my grandfather wound up being detained, and my 
mom and my uncle and my grandma basically, and my great grandma and my great grandfather basically like roamed the Italian countryside, like sleeping in barns, waiting for my grandpa to get out. Um, and when he was released, they then came to America. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. How long was that period? Um, the roaming the Italian countryside period was a year, I think. And then, so I think the whole thing probably took a little over a year. Jeez. The whole journey. Huh. So different from how life is now. <laughs> it was funny. And my mom is actually a, now she's a, um, uh, she works at O'Hare in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and she works in the international terminal. And when the Muslim ban happened, um, one of her carriers is uh, United Arab Emirates, like their airline. Mm-hmm. And so um, she, they had, they all got like this script that they had to like say to passengers, like about how they couldn't come in. And I was like, are you okay? Like, are you having feelings? Do you have like repressed trauma that's coming up? Like right. you are also a refugee. And she was like, totally fine. She was like, I don't know. It was bizarre. Able, she like able to dissociate. She totally disassociated. Like, so one of my friends suggested like, oh, like she did her. She was seven or eight when they came over, and so my one of my friends was like, oh, she actually like did such a good job repressing her experience that she's like not traumatized by it, hmm. like not like actively traumatized. Right, <laughs> right. And there has to be like some very heavy trigger that has to be specific in order for that trauma to come back. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and it manifests in, like, tons of other ways. She's not, like, a stable person by any means. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wonder if our generation's able to do that, to suppress uh, to that extent, you know? I think we just because we grew up with such an expressionistic outlet uh, and and it being so open and welcomed and therapy being on the TV and something that's not taboo and, you know, Tony Soprano went to therapies, you know, we grew up (laughs) with that on the TV. Um, I wonder if, if we are, um, you know, less able to, to stomach it and, and compartmentalize it in such ways. I think the way that experience manifests for our generation is with financial anxiety. I think we have grown up so, um, accustomed to financial anxiety being like the default that we actually can't conceive of a world in which we don't have this feeling. So I we're so functional we're so functional in um a state of financial anxiety. That's like our like being hyper functional in in uh it, despite this sort of intense trauma. Because I think the the financial anxiety we grew up with was at, or that happened sort of in the middle of our development was absolutely a trauma. Well, like I think ex- the recession was absolutely exactly. a trauma. Well, and I was mentioning this to Venus recently because I was watching that show I told you about, um, the 90s and the 2000s, which was a CNN, CNN series that's now on Netflix, and they're just going through everything that happened throughout those decades, and it talks about Enron, uh, mm-hmm. and that was the first thing that we ever saw in regards to money, like, not being okay in our country, and... Yeah, like, money, things, that was, like, yeah, money being, being evil. Yeah, like, things Texas. being hidden, and, like, yeah. you finding out, like, oh, this isn't really working out too well, and then... Eight years later, the recession happens, and we're like, okay, well, now we're actually adults, and we act. this affects us a little more. It's just a little crazy to think about how the times have changed, and what we do worry about is all financial. And there's like, just no roadmap yeah. for the financial and career trajectory of people our age. Yeah, there's no roadmap at all. And Everything everyone told us when we were growing up is, like, bullshit. Exactly. Like, none of that is true. Right. And the thing is, we're told so much of the bullshit growing up. We think that that's the reality when we turn 18 and we're shoved out of our parents' homes and have to go do our own thing. But it would be so beneficial for all of the generations to come or for our generation if, like, a, a prerequisite to to going to college was having to take a course that was specifically on like credit and taxes yeah taxes like how what is an work? apr like how you know how to sign up for health insurance right <laughs> how to sign up for health insurance like all of the things like yeah. what a premium is 
guys. Yeah, the yeah. main thing that submit they know to that, the system too, right? Because, because I I kind of disagree with with what you're saying. Um, I don't think that that's um an epidemic with of our generation. I think that's an epidemic of the independent minded of our generation, the independent contractors of our generation, right. the freelancers, the creative spirits. It's a lot of because I sell houses, you know, down in Pennsylvania to people who are our age, who are our age, and they're the millennial generation that studied advertising and went into advertising. They studied marketing and they have a marketing job and yeah, they're moving up the ladder to, and they jumped yeah. they, they stayed in the system you know there's a very specific or their lawyers or their doctors exactly yeah. um and but so but i do think that it, it is a major struggle for those of us Artists. that yeah. yeah i feel like when i was starting school though it was like oh expect to struggle like you will be poor you're not going to make a lot of money so i don't feel lied to in that way but i felt like i personally just didn't have perspective on what that would actually mean like yeah i was like oh none of that matters to me like I'm punk rock, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually, like, uncomfortable to not have basic needs met. Like, it's, I don't know. Like, I think, for me, I think when I grew up with certain comforts, I just assumed those would always be there. Yeah. And so thinking about what it would be like to not have money, I didn't necessarily associate with also, like, not being comfortable. I don't know. stupid. Naive. What did you think? When you came to NYU and you started studying acting, what did you think, where did you, where did you think you would be in 2018, 2019, 2020? Right. Um, on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, in straight plays, being like the, just winning like supporting actress Tony after supporting actress Tony. <laughs> <laughs> like being like, because I was like very aware at that point in my life, like I was not a leading lady and like I was not perceived that way by the sort of gatekeepers of theater. Um, And so I really embraced and leaned into being like the ultra witty sort of like super smart best friend i'm the relatable like, one yeah well i wasn't relatable i was like bitchy but uh, like yes <laughs> <laughs> you realize from my experience you became that and i don't mean bitchy but uh the, all the rest I of the definition okay, in bitchy. real life yeah i mean yeah i think uh, yes for me you know as you know we you being coming on and how we met you deciding to be my stage manager for a production i was doing in 2007 Barely knowing me, you know, uh, an independent film that I directed and produced in 2010, 2011, you, you came on as my line producer, you know, that that supporting character. Um, it, it was it was something that you ended up uh, manifesting in your day to day, too. Yeah. Oh, you're saying I became the supporting best friend, like the sassy best friend of your life. Mine, in particular, yes. Yes, Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably true of a lot of my friends, but yeah, I see that with you. Interesting. Uh, What are you doing now? I am a writer. Um, I'm a freelance uh, sex and culture writer, Um, so that's kind of my main outlet, my sort of what my career is based around at this point. Um, Didn't you used to be a food writer? I did used to be a food writer, so I have kind of like a long... um, I've been... Media was kind of like my first job right out of college. I started as like a freelance, um, like basically celebrity gossip writer. I was literally writing like Jersey Shore recaps. I love, <laughs> like, love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So that was like my first out of college, like money job. I, I was like, oh, I'm gonna... really admiring that you were making money doing something that was like fun and like related to the industry. And well, and just also that was so huge around that time of like, just graduating from college, there was so much media to be consumed that had to do with, like, celebrity culture and stuff like that. So it was always, like, whatever was on Perez Hilton. Yeah, pop blogging was, like, really sort of exploding in exactly. that moment. Um, yeah, and and when I was in college, I was, like, reading Perez Hilton. I was, like, reading uh, Go Fuck Yourself, which I still read, like, adore. Um, yeah, I used to love that. Yeah, I love Go Fuck <laughs> Yourself. What is that? Uh, they're these, like, fashion bloggers, but they're super snarky. You love snark. <laughs> I like, I mean, I read a lot of like Gawker and Jezebel in college. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like this kind of like really informed my voice. And um, yeah, I just, when I graduated, it, it, it had become so much of my vernacular with my friends and like how I connected to, with people. And I was like, oh, this is my like lane. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like having these kind of like snarky pop culture takes. Um, so I started doing that and then I, after about a year and a half of freelancing, I got an in-house job, um, as the associate editor of a new, uh, food site that was launching 
was sort of a satellite site of this bigger flagship site, like as all media sort of companies are. Um, and then I did that and I kind of worked my way up and became the senior editor. Um, it, we got nominated for a James Beard Award for Best Group Blog while I was um, running it basically with one other person. So that was really cool. Is that why I got hey. to eat all those burgers that, that night? That is why you got to eat all those burgers that one night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you also came to me to the Queer for Beard party, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, uh, which was next door to a drag race viewing party, which yeah. was like a fun mix of people. Nice. <laughs> that was fun. Um, so cute. it was cute. I've been craving the uh, deep fried uh, cream spinach balls that we had that night that one of the burger chefs made as like an accompaniment to the burger. I have no I've been recollection craving of this, that but... cream spinach ball <laughs> for like every since day since that night in 2011 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so go on. So so after that, um, I wasn't really a food writer. I was sort of covering because my background was in TV. Um, so I was really covering the intersection of, like, food and celebrity culture. Hmm. Um, so I was covering a lot of celebrity chefs. We were basically treating celebrity chefs like their own sort of gossip entity. Oh. Um, so that was kind of my niche there. And so then, it's like Gordon Ramsay did this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I kind of got bored just, like, writing about the same nine dudes over and over again. Um, and so I was <laughs> like, I'm done with this. And I got more into sort of more mainstream entertainment um, writing uh, uh, I became an entertainment editor at one of our sister sites um, and then I got laid off as everybody in media does every two years right. and yeah. uh, was super traumatized by it because it was before there was this like visibility around like media is dying and like everybody gets laid off every two years I didn't know any of that I didn't go to J school so I didn't know like what the industry really was I kind of like fell my way into it right um, I got, like, accidentally good at it, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. So I had no sort of context. I All I knew was that I was, like, deeply ashamed that I got laid off. I yeah. felt like I failed. I didn't want anybody to know that I had gotten laid off. Whereas, like, today, if you get laid off from a media job, you're, like, immediately on Twitter being like, hey, you know, BuzzFeed laid me off. And then, like, a hundred people come and, like, offer you, like, work. You which, is cra- <laughs> which is so crazy. I was just about to say that, like, all of the people that I know that are huge freelance writers like all of these journalists are being found on twitter yeah and it's like oh i have fourteen thousand followers on twitter and it's all just like memes and that's how you get jobs yeah Yeah. um i I mean after i got laid off i tried to do because i didn't know any better i tried to do the like traditional you know like i went on media bistro and i like applied to all of the editor jobs i was qualified for and i did this for like eight months just like going through um, the job boards and the LinkedIn and the greenhouse and the everything, you know, looking for another media job. And I did it for eight months and got nowhere. And one of the jobs that I had interviewed for and didn't wind up getting, they were like, oh, we're not going to offer you this editor job, but uh, we love your clips. We want you to freelance for us. And I was like, oh, okay. Like my employment, unemployment is running out. Like, I guess I'll do that. Um, And as soon as I started freelancing and like getting pieces out there, all of these editors from all of these sites that I had applied to work in-house at, like, were DMing me on Twitter being like, oh my god, we saw this and we loved it. Do you want to freelance for us too? And I was like, wait a minute. It's like, wait, like, but I actually wanted to work for yeah, you. Yeah, like, I, like, I've applied to a hundred jobs at <laughs> your company. You're like, I applied to be your janitor. And yeah, you guys like, <laughs> but like, but, and that was kind of the moment that I started realizing, like, oh, everything I think I know about how you go about getting a job mm. is, like, Bullshit. Yeah, it's completely different now. Um, my friend Spencer is the head of social media for World of Wonder. And it's just because on Twitter he would make like funny memes and I don't know, tweet whatever was on his mind. And then yeah. next thing you know, it's like, oh, you want to work for us? Yeah. And get paid very well. <laughs> so when did you stop auditioning? Oh, um, I probably did it for like a year and a half, two years after college. Mm-hmm. And then I stopped. Um, Mostly because reading breakdowns every day as a 22-year-old woman and, like, the kinds of roles that there are for 20... There there were for 22-year-old women in 2010 was, like, actually having a really significant impact on my mental health. Like, Mm. it was really degrading and, like, demoralizing and depressing to just read, like, breakdown after breakdown of these just, like, shitty, misogynistic, gross character breakdowns yeah. for scripts that were stupid, like unintelligent. <laughs> like, and I was just like, why am I, I, 
I, I just like couldn't do it anymore. And I was also like, I could like, I don't, I know that I don't want to work with these people. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to be on a project where like, this is how the creative is thinking. Right. Um, and so I just started, so I stopped sort of doing the, the actors access backstage auditioning process. And I basically just started accepting when my friends would offer to like do things with me and found that way more fulfilling I was working with people who had the same vocabulary as me, um, like artistic vocabulary. And so it was really easy to make creative and gratifying work. And so I just did that instead. What's the piece you worked on recently? Um, a, you mean a written piece? Yeah. Oh, um, the last thing that I wrote was, the last sort of big thing that I wrote was a, uh, I don't know if you remember, probably you don't because none of you were girls in 1999, but um, <laughs> there was this... Uh, I thought I was. Although you might be now. Yeah, yeah that's why I specified in 1999. <laughs> um, so there's this like tween sex ed sites called Scarletine that launched in mm-hmm. the late 90s, mm-hmm. um, which I remember and was on as a child. And uh, they just turned 20. And the site is founded by and like independently run um by this queer non-binary but also woman identified person who lives uh, who's from chicago um and so i wrote this sort of like big retrospective on the website and like how it's still alive 20 years later and i sort of contextualized it in the moment we're in uh in media where all of media is dying so like how is this independently run like super ethical amazing sex ed resource for kids like still alive (laughs) um Especially in the context, the the thing that inspired me to write it was after BuzzFeed did their last round of layoffs, I think it was like, they laid off like 15% of their staff in January, and they laid off their entire um, health news desk, which is where all of their sex Mm. relationships content lived. They laid off all but one of their LGBT desk. Um, The same month, uh, Grindr shut down its digital outlet, which I also wrote for. Um, I had so many friends that worked for them, and just gone. Yeah. Um... A couple years ago, I interviewed to be the sex and relationships editor at Mike. Um, Their sex and relationships section was called Connections. Um, And I didn't get the job, but the person who did get the job wound up getting laid off six months or nine months later because they, or a year later, because they shut down the entire vertical. They just like canceled. They just like did not have sex and relationships content anymore. Um, And the bustle job I applied to was a sex and relationships editor position where uh, that job also no longer exists. She's like, the person who got the job instead of me is now like the deputy lifestyle editor. And all of the editors who work under her are lifestyle editors. So I was really getting freaked out by the shuttering of spaces to think about sex online. Right. Just to, like, just to think about it, just to like process it, to like have a discourse, to like exchange ideas. You know what I mean? Like, what does it mean what is it going to mean for us as a, like a social consciousness to not have these spaces to think about sex anymore? Um, so that's really scary to me as a person who writes about sex and relationships a lot um, and thinks about sex a lot. And like for me, very much sex is like the lens through which I view the world. Um, and how, so, how do you identify? Uh, I identify as queer. Mm-hmm. I identify as a dyke. Mm-hmm. Hey. Those are good ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, a queer woman of dyke experience, if oh. you will. <laughs> uh, so is that lens that you were saying you view the world through, is that what got you into writing those those pieces? Or was there an opportunity that then led you into it and you found out that you liked it? I definitely noticed when I was entertainment writing that I was really drawn to the sort of intersection of, like, sex and media Mm -hmm. and, like, sex and culture. Um, And I kept taking all of those kinds of, like, sex-related stories. You know, I kept claiming... I found myself continually claiming those. Um, And, yeah, I think it's just because I've, like, always been... I was, like, a really, like... In, in tune with my sexuality kid. I, like, came out when I was really young. Um, I'm, like, a super exhibitionist, and I always have been. I think I just... Um, I've seen your boobs on Instagram. I'm... Ever, yeah, everyone who follows me Anyone on Instagram. Who's on Instagram. <laughs> has seen my boobs on Instagram. Um, so I think that... 
I, I just have this access to, sexu- to sexuality in my life that makes me feel like I can, I just have this facility with it that makes it really easy for me to write about it and like track its, um, how it evolves in like society. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. What's your dream project? <clears throat> um, having my girls, like a half hour HBO semi-autobiographical comedy writer, creator, star. Ditto. Love it. Total ditto. <laughs> Total ditto. Yeah. That's the dream. Yeah. How do you feel about some of the people who are in our age group who have gotten those opportunities and like what they've done with them. So may it be Lena Lena Dunham, Lena Dunham, Frankie Shaw. Um, um, what's her name? Um, Rachel, Rachel Bloom. Bloom. Yeah, but hers, that's a different, genre. but her, hers is a different genre, but 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 she's still, but she's still, but she's still the showrunner writing all the songs, you know, like it's, a project that it was she her is baby, a force of and nature. then like Issa Rae, the same thing. Donald Glover. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I find them all really inspiring. I think that um, girls really resonated with me, but I think the reason that it got so much backlash, which is understandable, is not because of the content of the show itself, but because of the media's reaction to it. Like media was acting like Lena Dunham was the singular millennial experience. And Mm -hmm. like, she did this amazing thing by like tapping into this show. And I high key identify with that show because I was a white woman living in Brooklyn in 2010 who went to NYU. But like, obviously I am not the millennial experience. So like, it was hard for me. Um, like that show identifies so much of my um, create that, that show is so much my creative dream, you know what I mean? And so I have that attachment to it. Mm-hmm. But I also understand why it's been preserved in this really problematic way. Um, and so it's hard for me to grapple with like, I hate the way that the show is treated, but and like I hate what and like obviously Lena's a mess but like <laughs> but she like, just like, celebrated a year sober I, I, I'm oh, wow. so happy for her that's and cool. her like many pets like I'm, she seems to be living her best life and that's great but like you know I, I acknowledge what's problematic about the show but on the mm-hmm. other hand I, it, it's so much my like dream creative project yeah. it's like my I, platonic ideal of like my dream creative project right I love that have you written any screenplays I haven't. I took this class that was sort of really traumatizing <laughs> with um, this woman who is a consulting producer. She basically, the the technique that she teaches um, is Jill Soloway's like direct, directing praxis. Um, like Jill Soloway came to her as a writer off of Six Feet Under and was like, hey, I want to start directing and like punch above my weight. Like teach me how. Oh, wow. And this woman taught her her technique. Okay. Um, taught them their technique. Um, right. And... So I took like a workshop, like a weekend long workshop with her. It was super traumatizing. It immediately put me back into like undergraduate, uh-huh. like I need to get an A. Like, well, not not even just that, but like the kind of like abusive teacher dynamic, uh-huh. like art abusive artist dynamic. Right. It kind of thrust me back into that for a weekend. And when mm. I was in college, um, I went to college before I went to therapy. And so in college, I was very used to it as like, oh, this is like what being an artist is. It's like mm-hmm. getting your ass kicked all the time and like feeling like shit all the time. Right. Like this is <laughs> this is what being like I'm doing it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like I felt proud of myself for like being able to take it. You know what I mean? Totally. And then I went to therapy and I was like, whoa, <laughs> like all of that is super fucked up. I don't need that anymore. Fuck that shit. And then I went back and I stepped back into this kind of like art student role and I realized all of the things I, just, I like cried every day like of this workshop because like I would, go, I would go home and just cry for like hours and hours because like I remembered how fucked up undergrad was yeah and like I didn't say anything I and know. like I didn't even register that it was fucked up so I was having this like right. kind of trauma processing while doing this workshop so I did the workshop so that I could write something because I I'm always like, my therapist is always like, write a screenplay, write a screenplay. And I'm always like, no, yeah. I didn't go to school for that. I don't know how. He's like, fucking Google it. Like, it's right. not <laughs> Also, you're a writer. Also, I mean, I'm a writer, but I don't I have, know. like, screenwriting. You know what I, I mean? Know, like, I don't I know, know what I that know. thing is. But, like, how many... But you write about TV shows. You've... 
analyzed all these scripts. You know what I mean? You've acted yeah. in them, been involved in all this stuff. You've seen all this TV, written about all this TV, you know, processed, digested all this content. Like, you do have it. And it's like your I own know, voice. I know, I just don't know that. I yeah, sometimes we just have blocks because of those traumas that we dealt with in previous instances. So it's like, oh, if I try to do this and it's not successful, I'm going to feel the way that I felt about this. And that was me with songwriting for a really long time. And it's also like, oh, I don't have the um, technical, I've never learned the technical skill of how to do this, so that means I can't do it. I'm mm-hmm. going through the same thing right now, writing a book. Uh, yeah, I've never desired writing a book. I've never taken a class on writing uh, prose. I have no idea what I'm doing, about what I'm doing, or whether it's good at all. Um, of course, like, then I get into dialogue in the book, and I'm like, oh, this is gold. <laughs> because that's what I'm used to. I'm used to dialogue. I'm used to being able to do pers- uh, multiple perspectives. Plus, it's like, you know, it's it's the story of something that happened to me. So yeah. um, I know it's honest, but I don't know if it's good. And I won't know until I've done it. That's what I keep telling myself. Like, that's what gets me through another day of writing. Is like, I won't know until it's done and until I fine-tune it. So, like... You won't know until the screenplay is great until you do it and then right. edit it and then have somebody else edit it and then look at it again. And then at the end of the day, like, then you'll know. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of a generational thing with our generation specifically, though, because we're kind of in the middle of this age old um, concept of go to school, learn the craft, and then do the craft for the rest of your life. And then people who are like oh I didn't do any of that and I kind of just figured this out one day and we kind of grew up in this weird in-between where we got the education for one thing and then leading into something else it's like oh no like that feels too foreign it feels too far away I don't know enough about it but we have the internet and so many resources to just find out everything if you want to be a filmmaker if you want to write a screenplay like you can literally Google it all. So I feel like it's kind of a benefit, but we kind of have to dive into it or else, like you said, it's like we never know if we're going to be good at it or I not. I also think that your voice is a really important one. Like, you were just comparing yourself... As a queer woman of Jack experience? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, you were just comparing yourself to Lena, but it's like you actually offer a dimensionality that was missing from her So right. Yeah, she had her her gay male best friend but like that even that was pretty two-dimensional she, like, didn't she go down on a yoga teacher and then like immediately vomit right and like okay so Issa Rae is adding a certain dimensionality to this right. millennial voice it's like your voice is part of this patchwork quilt that makes us all up like I really do think it would be a really good really good thing for you to pursue thank you mm-hmm. for saying that so what do, you, do you see the writing that you're doing as journalism? Uh, I, I like, when people ask me what you do, I'm like, she's an opinion artist. Oh! Like she, opinion artist. You, like, and I see that in your Instagram stories. I see it in our conversations. I see it in the... Um, I read a couple of your pieces, you know, when you posted them around New Year's, like, and presented all the ones that you had done. Oh, right, I yeah. I did, like, of a, like and, a best of reel yeah, of 2018. And, and, and it's like, you're more than an opinion writer. I find you to be an opinion artist like it and it's it's in the crafting of it um it's it's coming from um a deeper perspective and a personalization uh that that, that i think that's where it is it's 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 how deeply personal your opinions are it's not i it's not i think this i feel it and you need to understand why i feel it so tremendously um, and I get that in all of all of your communication. Um, so because I wasn't you, loved enough as a child. Um, That's why I like desperately need people to understand my opinions because I feel <laughs> fundamentally misunderstood. <laughs> totally fair. So, what is your parents' relationship to you? Like, were they happy when you were going to go to school for drama? Like, when did you start identifying as an artist, and what was their relationship to it? Um. When I was in sixth grade, that was my first like audition experience. I like auditioned for a school play because I was taking drama as my elective, and um, I got like a pretty good part for a sixth for like you know I was the youngest of the you know group that was allowed to audition, and so I got a pretty good part for how old I was, and I was like, oh, that's interesting, and then I kind of realized 
between sixth and seventh grade, which it happened again, I auditioned again in seventh grade and got a good part again. Um, and I sort of realized that what it was is that I was really loud. <laughs> like I had like an under, like an innate understanding of projection and like enunciation that most oh. of my classmates didn't have. And I was like, oh, I'm good at this because I'm loud. <laughs> um, and so... And so I just started doing it more and more because it was like rewarding to like try a thing and get kind of big parts. And that kind of kept happening for the rest of my teen years. And that was that felt good. Um, and then so probably by the time I was in high school, like very early on, I was like, OK, I'm going to like I'm going to like try to go to conservatory. Mm-hmm. Um, and did lots of play. I like stacked my resume. I would do like. 10 shows a year because I went to all girls school so I would do the shows at my school I would do the shows at the all boys school I would do like three I I grew up in Chicago so I would do like three summer regional theater productions a year like I Uh stacked my resume wow Um, and was your your mom like really supportive of this was it just like oh this is just what's happening or was she super supportive did she wish you were gonna be like pre-med you know what I mean she wasn't like a big stage mom um she was like okay this is the thing that's happening like Mm -hmm. this is like the activity she wants to pursue so she would like drive me around everywhere yeah um I think I think she found like the audition the college audition process really exciting um you know I remember us flying to New York for my NYU I think I auditioned for NYU and Fordham at the same time yeah um and I remember flying in for that weekend and she was reading uh uh, Stella Adler's book on the plane because I knew that I wanted to go to Adler. Oh. <laughs> so she read Stella Adler's book on the plane, which I thought was so sweet and supportive. Oh um, so I think she found the uh, process. I mean, I think like the tiger mom in her found the like competitive like college admissions process really exciting and fun. Um, as far as drama, she the like deal we made. Uh, was you can get a BFA and go to conservatory if you go to law school afterwards. So when we made that, <laughs> so when we made that New York trip, she bought me a Columbia Law T-shirt while oh. I was like touring NYU. <laughs> uh, wow. She was like, just so you know, like don't forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that pressure was there. It was always part of it. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, oh my god, do whatever you want. Follow your dreams. Also, though, you're going to law school. Right. So what was the conversation like when you? informed your parents that you were wanting to like kind of make this change in your career and not go on auditions anymore. Yeah, when did that plan disintegrate? Uh, the law school plan? Yeah. Uh, the recession happened and she like... And she was like, oh, no, girl. She, yeah, she was like, <laughs> oh, we can't pay for anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and and don't my, take out more debt. Yeah, don't take yeah. out more debt. She was like, no, you're done. Or she yeah. was at least like, I'm, I'm done. done. You know, I uh-huh. up until 2008, I spent my whole life with my parents telling me and my mom telling me like, we are going to support you through grad school. That is our job as parents, oh, wow. is to, like, educate you through your PhD if you want it. Yeah. And so I spent my whole life thinking that was what the case was going to be. And then the recession happened. And already before that, I could tell she was sort of in over her head with, like, NYU tuition. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so as it was all... maybe. Yeah, so it was already time. starting to fall apart, and mm-hmm. I could tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just got really bad after the recession. And right. so that's when the law school plan kind of, like, she didn't give a fuck anymore. Right. Um, I did double major in English. She, she sort of pressured that out of me. <laughs> um, so I felt like I, I had know a, that. Oh, yeah, I double majored in English. Mm. Hence this ease of writing, mastery of word, language. Yeah, and, I mean, I was yeah. always really verbal and yeah, wordy and yeah, a good yeah. writer. So, like, I knew that was going to be my double major plan. And also, NYU made it really easy. Um, they have, like, a... You're um, wordish, not wordy. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, they have uh, like a special program for drama majors because you do so much reading and you take so many like lit adjacent yeah. classes. Right, right. Um, so I could take a couple less um, English requirements courses and a couple less theater requirements courses and kind of like, yeah, so that it, they made it easy. Cool. Thank you, academic advisors. Thank you, academic advisors. <laughs> that, that touched my heart so much to hear about your mom reading the Stella Adler book. Yeah. Um, my mom was was certainly um, highly supportive, but uh, she never went and read a book or like took an interest in that way. Uh, I think the first one that I found out she was reading was uh, when I was stuck out in San Francisco in a meth addiction. And I found out she was reading um, a book called um, Men, Meth, and Lust. <laughs> so a little different but cute nonetheless and loving moms also Lori's so like warm and 
supportive and mom-like in general. That even if she's not, like, specifically into your thing, Mm -hmm. like, the support and, like, warmth and love is there. Absolutely. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Love, Lori. So... Okay, so going back to auditioning, why you stopped in 2010, blah, blah, blah. But now, 2019, it was like 2012, but yeah. there's a lot more conversations about, you know, yeah. a, a, you know, a wider spectrum of people being cast. Right. Like, do you feel like you could overcome those traumas and put yourself back out there and just start auditioning again? Because this is a skill that has always come naturally to you and you have so much training and experience in, you can just retap. Or does it feel like a door has closed and you're like not an actress anymore? No, I definitely very much still identify as an actress. I don't think the door is closed. I think that was part of what was so important about be- about training to me was um, knowing that I would have those skills forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, learning on the job is also great and like n- not knocking it. Like it's, that's amazing for people who can just sort of like get off a bus from things. Kansas mm-hmm. in LA when they're 18 and like take off. Like that's cool too. Um, but I was getting, actually this is something I wanted to talk to you guys about, but I was getting a lot of, um, most of my feedback when I was in college from, from acting teachers was, um, go like fuck off and do something else for 20 years and then come back and play the roles that you were meant to play. Right. So which is like a pretty common I mean, I feel like that's a common ish um, note to give women with my vibe. (laughs) Right. So like I'm not when I'm 20, you know, I'm not I'm not an ingenue type. And so I'm not going to get ingenue roles. And that's kind of like how their brains are wired. They like can't break through that that sort of structured and like rigid system. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was thinking about this when I was thinking about coming on this podcast I was thinking, like, what does that mean? Like, telling a 20-year-old actress, like, there's not going to be roles for you until you're 50. Like, what are you, like, what are we actually saying when we say that? Because it's a pretty common thing to say to women. Or right. Or to say, to say to young actresses. Yeah. Right. I feel like I know so many people who have heard that in L.A. And it's kind of, it's like a weird stressor because you're not really sure what to take that as. Or, like, does that mean I'm not good enough today? Does that mean that they're just not writing the roles? It's just like a whole mind fuck. Is that something that you were also thinking about when you decided that you weren't going to do it? Well, it was something that I knew. It was something that I was aware of was a thing. Like I knew mm-hmm. that the, that this block was in my way, not because of me, but because of like how the casting world works, mm-hmm. because of what gets produced, because of what gets picked up. Um I knew that there weren't going to be roles for people like me. And so, yeah, I think it helped. It helped me not feel discouraged. I I didn't feel like I couldn't do it. I didn't believe that I was bad. I didn't think I wasn't a good actor. I was like, there's, I was like, people don't understand me. I was like, there's no material for me. Right. And I've written a piece about this before too. I've written about how, um, like as a femme dyke like people don't really know what to do with me like casting people are always like well if you want to play gay then why don't you look gayer by which they mean more masculine (laughs) and they're like and if you want to pass for straight then like why aren't you happy to like capitulate to these shitty misogynistically written straight roles you know what I mean and it's like because it's 2019 yes so like so that's a that's a big um thing I faced a lot when I was in the like traditional when I was doing the traditional audition thing was people just like did not understand what to do with me or why I was so sort of like headstrong and stubborn and obstinate about like not wanting to do certain things Mm -hmm. um one of the we had I had this like sort of semi-famous teacher in college that was like you know he came in and did a master class with us and um he's like a very commercially successful actor and he was like you know don't ever think you're above anything when you're like out in the real world auditioning. Like don't ever think you're too good for a script or a project. And at the time I like took what he was saying to heart and like internalized it. And then once I got older, I was like, no, because like really what I was like, those are the words of like a very privileged white man. (laughs) You know what I mean? Exactly. (laughs) To say that it's like, you don't have to deal with the like emotional toll Mm -hmm. of what it is to be a woman or a queer person or a Brown person. Like, immersed in this work all the time right the shitty work to be casted as like the the comic relief or the sassy black friend or like the random like 
queer person who like isn't part of the storyline but like they're here for representation like it you know it's like you are you are absolutely <laughs> above playing characters that dehumanize exactly you. everybody is above anything that fetishizes that you, you or yeah exactly i'm 100 percent here with that <laughs> yeah i'm curious um do you have a preference of any of the Democratic, National, uh, Republican... Uh, sorry, I'm going to start that out question over. <laughs> I'm, cu- I'm curious, do you have a preference of any of the people running for president right now? I have, early on? I have muted all primaries discourse from my life. Mm-hmm. I'm so tired. I'm, I'm pre-tired <laughs> for, for the primaries. Um... The reason that I don't feel moved by any of the Democratic candidates is because all of them had shitty had a shitty record on SESTA-FOSTA. And sex workers are so important to my life. Sex workers are so important to my work. Um, they're so important to, like, how I grew into this, like, bat, like boss bitch femme queer, like, woman who I am today, like... I don't know. Sex workers are just like a really important part of my life and and for everyone to have just sort of like screwed them over royally on this bill, on the passage of these two bills and for everyone in the Democratic pool to have a shitty record on that is just like super depressing to me. And so I'm like, I can't even... I, I like can't... This is the first time really this has happened in my political life, but like I j- truly don't have a favorite or anything close to a favorite. That's the thing. It's just kind of difficult to have a favorite in our government today because everyone is problematic in their own way and no one 100% aligns with anyone's views, especially when you find out like who they're taking money from and just like what the policies are in general. I'm I'm still here for Bernie, (laughs) but it's like, do you Bernie have, was you know. my fa- Bernie was definitely a favorite for me last cycle, but then he had like all of that weird he had that like weird abortion like mm. detour, and I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> I want him to go away. Yeah, now I want him to go away. Do you, out of principle, think that a woman should win? Out of principle, no. Like, I don't need Kamala Harris to be president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. you know what I mean? Like, if Kamala Harris was the choice, I would be like cranky about it. What do you think of Pete Buttigieg? Um, I think he's, like, very charming. Uh, did you watch my Instagram story? I just no. put a video. <laughs> there was this ridiculous video of him prepping before. Um, he's, like, prepping before a Ellen? talk. Was it Ellen? No, 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 no. It was just, like, a town hall thing or something like mm-hmm. that. But he's prepping before speaking. And he's, like, sitting at a piano playing um, The Way We Get By by Spoon. And I was just like, this is the most <laughs> millennial president moment I've ever seen. <laughs> I put it in my Instagram story. It was really That's silly. Because um, I was oh, just like, can you God. imagine? I just I was watching this video and I was just like, oh, God, can you imagine how insufferable a millennial president is going to be? Like, fucking Alt-J is going to play the inauguration. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I love that that's where your mind went was like, oh, my God, I can't imagine a millennial president. I remember years ago, my former creative partner and I, Andre, um, were t- he was talking about a TV show that would be so surreal to have uh, a president run, a-, a guy run for president, get elected and then come out of the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like how crazy it would be. To- and I think there's even, isn't that there a Tig Notaro show like in the works about. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. First Lady. First Lady, right. They're not. They they're, She doesn't. She, no, she doesn't do that. Out, I know, yeah. not that explicitly. But but the fact that that um, people would judge wasn't even considered as like, oh, a gay president. Oh, a millenn- it's a millennial president. Yeah, it's a millennial <laughs> That's president. the real Well, shocker. to me, he's a millennial president. Um, but I, I think he's very charming. And, like, I think he and I, I mean, I don't know him, but I think he and I have, like, a really good cultural intimacy and I think he has a good cultural intimacy with other people like the people sitting at this table mm-hmm. which I think makes him likable and relatable and like fun and um I think he's great to like I like listening to him talk you know what I mean <laughs> like uh but at this point I feel like he's a little like policy weak and I don't know like am I really gonna vote for you just because like I think you seem like a cool guy who like could be my kids like gay uncle like I don't know (laughs) like is that president material like I don't know yeah it's hard to decide I am into the idea though of just having like a really boring president this cycle like I just want someone who will do nothing (laughs) (laughs) I just want someone who won't take away 
things that we already have in line. And like anyone who actually wants to create equality for everyone who lives in this country, just because it's like, we can't keep breaking it down like, oh, LGBT, LGBT this, and then black people that, and then white people this, and then Mexican people that, and all of this like separatism. It's more like, okay, how do we want everyone to be able to live? Should everyone be able to have health care? Should everyone be able to, you know, like get government assistance if necessary? You know, I just feel like there's so many things that with the current reign that have been like backpedaling and taking away some of these freedoms or threatening to take away these freedoms. And it just has like everyone in a frenzy all the time where it's like, no one cares about my group where it's like, we should just care about everyone's group. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. And maybe this will be the last question. Cause we're, uh, the day is okay. It's a beautiful day outside. Um, <laughs> why have you stayed in New York? Oh, that's a really good question. There was a period of time where I was considering moving to the Bay Area because I really want to have a baby and New York is a city of children and like nobody here, no adults here, you know what I mean, are like trying to like settle down and have kids. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that like, you know, we, we went to NYU, like we moved here when we were 18. Like I had my party phase in college, like I mm -hmm. got it out of my system, you know what I mean? But I feel like everybody else who lives here is a transplant from, like, after college or after grad school where, like, they all started their party phases at, like, 26 or, you know, when they moved here. And so I've just constantly felt, like, ahead of my age group, mm -hmm. which I sort of worked around for a while by just, like, I would only date people, like, 15 years older than me because <laughs> I was, like, you're the only people who I feel, like, on my level. Mm -hmm. Um so I couldn't, yeah, but yeah, you know, New York was a city of people who were not, who were trying to find themselves and not trying to settle down. And so it was becoming really hard for me to try to do family stuff. And so I was, everybody was telling me like, oh, you're like dream butches in the Bay. Like go to the Bay. <laughs> like a hundred butches will line up to put a baby in you. I was like, okay. Um, and then it just kind of never worked out. Like the timing was always bad. I never really like found a community there. And so I stayed and now I think, I think I found a butch who I want to have a baby with, but Maybe I'm jinxing it by talking about it on the podcast. Knock, knock. We'll knock on wood. Knock on wood on that one. <laughs> what made you, that so was, was it just people's suggestions of being in the Bay or what? It was, like I, it was like a lot of people I dated here. Like a lot of my favorite people here were from the Bay or mm. grew up there. They were like, that's your vibe. That's like where all the things you want are. Go there to chase them. Yeah. Um, so it was mostly that like... And I also, I know, like, I know that the Bay Area has more queer women per capita than mm -hmm. any other place in the world. Right. Like, I, so I knew... Um, but, but it, yeah, it just never really, it never happened. And now I'm still here. And I also, the other, a huge and much simpler answer to your question is I have a rent stabilized apartment. There we go. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get to because I'm like, the Bay would not be the place. Just, it's so expensive there. And I used to tell people I would meet like, oh, you would love it in the Bay. And now I don't tell anyone that the apartment I used to live in was Twenty one ninety five a month, and now that same apartment is six thousand dollars a month. Yeah, no. I paid twenty four hundred for a room. No, ma'am. Like for a room, Lord. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I have, I do have a rent stabilized apartment here okay. with with, yeah. my, with my own bathroom. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah. Why did you come do this podcast? Oh, um, I thought it was a really novel idea that seemed like it had been in the works for a much longer time than it had actually been in the works to gather this group of people who all moved to New York to pursue artistry at the same time and then catch up with them again 15 years later and be like okay real talk what actually happened like I think that's so smart and it seems like I don't know, it's just such a, it seems like a really long-term project that we, like, thought up when we first got here and then waited 15 years to execute, but mm -hmm. it was actually the other way around. Well, we really appreciate you helping us launch it. Thank you so much. I loved being here. Yeah, yeah glad to have you.